From the Hype HQ studio in Chicago, Illinois, it's Startup Hype Man, the podcast. Hello, everyone. My name is Raj Nation, and I am the founder of Startup Hype Man. Fast-growing startups work with me because they want to become better storytellers. Whether that's for customers, investors, or a packed audience, they know that story is their ticket to stand out, stand apart, and change the game. And this podcast here is where I talk with entrepreneurs and leaders in the startup ecosystem, ranging from scale stage to early stage, as they share specific strategies that they have executed to stand out across three specific areas, sales, marketing, and people. Before we begin today's episode, remember you can head to startuphypeman.com and subscribe to the newsletter that doesn't suck. You'll get new podcast episodes and timely reads written by me, but also helpful articles from around the web and a notice of upcoming pitch competitions. All right, let's dive in and hear how today's guest is changing the game. Ladies and gentlemen, making her way to the microphone from Columbus, Ohio and currently residing in Chicago, Illinois. She is the founder and chief exercise officer of IndieFit. Please welcome Cheryl Kemp. Hey, 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 best intro ever. She is Cheryl Kemp, the founder, and I love this title, the Chief Exercise Officer of IndieFit. Well, what's IndieFit? They are on a mission to empower fitness instructors and trainers to earn more money by building their own independent businesses. IndieFit is arming the rebels in the fitness industry who dare to step outside the studio with a booking, business management, and community building tool and platform. IndieFit Launched just last year in the summer, in June of 2020, they've already got nearly 100 instructors on their platform. They've raised a friends and family around and have had over 500 classes posted and listed and booked on their platform. Now, I know IndieFit because I, as a part-time yoga instructor, as many of you listeners may know, uh, I've actually hosted a couple classes on IndieFit. So I'm not only having Cheryl as a guest on this show, but I also can speak to Cheryl as a user, as a customer of the IndieFit platform, which is always awesome when that can happen. And I'm really excited to bring Cheryl on today as we uh, wrap up season 16, excuse me, season 15 of the show. Did I get that right? I think it's season 15 we're in. Our season finale, nonetheless, I'm happy to have Cheryl on. And the topic that we are covering today is identifying your highest value customers. Cheryl, welcome to the show. Why is this on your mind and why is this important to you? Thanks. I appreciate this really amazing intro. I'm super excited to be here. I had a giant coffee before starting this because I wanted to make sure I could match this Raj energy. Um, <laughs> so super excited about this topic. You know, Andy is about six months old at this point. So I think we're kind of coming out of the phase of the business that I would call finding product market fit. And that's a really funny term. It's kind of difficult to define. And I, I always kind of laugh as a founder. It's like, it's, it's harder to know when you have found it. It's very easy to know when you don't have it, right? And so we've been doing a lot of learning over the last six months. We've changed a lot of things. And I think one of the most important ingredients to kind of getting to that point where we feel like we're going after the right people with the right product is doing exactly what you said. It's identifying who are our most valuable customers and really learning from those people. So this is a topic super near and dear to my heart. I'm really excited to chat more about it. 
Let's rewind the clock for a second, and we're going to talk all about that as this conversation progresses. Let's learn more about Cheryl, the person. Now, Cheryl, you grew up in Columbus, Ohio. Tell me, what was your family environment like growing up, and how do you feel that shaped your worldview and perspective? Oh, yeah. So, you know, I I call Columbus home, but I actually moved around a ton. And so I moved, I'm proud um, slightly wrong, but I moved something like 18 times in like my first 18 years of life. And so we were a total roadshow. I wasn't a military kid or anything like that, which I commonly get asked. Um, it was just like, it's something my dad did for work, constantly moved us around the country. And so it's interesting. I think that caused me to kind of start over a lot throughout my childhood. And I really just grew to embrace constant change um, and, and, you know, just embracing newness. And so probably in some way that has manifested in me being an entrepreneur and now in my professional life, really loving newness and launching things and zero to one. Newness and launching things. I like that a lot. I noticed that when you went to college at Cleveland State, um, one of the associations you were involved in was the American Marketing Association, the, the, the other AMA. Now, you may not know this, but at DePaul University, I was the president of DePaul's AMA for three years. So uh, I'm curious, was this a like just something that was like on like your resume, just a random organization that like you didn't show up to? Or were you involved in it? And if so, um, what kind of like experience did you did you gain out of that? Yeah, so I was very involved, but I was not the press. So you definitely had a deeper <laughs> level of involvement at DePaul than I did at Cleveland State. Um, no, I, I was pretty involved. I would say it was like a a monthly time commitment. And so I was definitely attending like chapter meetings. We had a lot of interesting speakers coming in from the community. But my college experience was actually an interesting one because I worked full-time managing a restaurant the whole time I was in college. And so um, that was stressful, right? But I think it also prepared me in many ways for balancing a lot and, and embracing a big workload. And so I actually took a lot of my college classes, like evenings, weekends, online, and just really embraced work. Um, and after graduating, I actually stayed in the restaurant industry for a long time. So um, that was a big part of my early life, actually. Wow. Okay. So let's talk about working in the restaurant industry, fast paced, people constantly asking for things, people constantly complaining about things, right? Um, what would you say is the t- number one lesson, life lesson you learned from working in the restaurant industry? Oh my gosh, there's many. Uh, you know, it's funny. I think I have this one specific thing that stands out actually. And this goes back to when I used to wait tables. I felt like I was at my best when I had a packed section. I was at my best when I was juggling like eight tables and chaos and tons of things going on. I made mistakes when I had one table. I made mistakes when things were slow. And I think that's actually an interesting life lesson is like sometimes you can push yourself to like peak productivity and you can have your best ideas and you can be most inspired when there's a lot going on versus when you're biting off just what you can chew. Um, so I think that's kind of the life lesson that's always followed me is I, I have this weird masochistic relationship where I think I crave chaos. And I think that actually started in the restaurant world. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it, this idea of actually working in the restaurant world or in the food industry, even it kind of stuck with you for a while, right? You ended up working at 
a company called Order Up, which was then bought by Groupon. You worked at Groupon. And then you spent a year uh, and, and you're doing like go-to-market strategy for these companies. Uh, and then you also spent nearly two years at Ritual, uh, which is, I believe, another Chicago-based company um, that is essentially an ordering platform for uh, different restaurants, kind of taking more of like a B2B play, though, than anything else. Um, can you talk us through that journey through these different um, these different companies and how did that ultimately lead to the exercise industry of all things? Yeah. So, you know, I, like I mentioned, I mean, I was in that restaurant world at a super young age in my college years, I studied marketing. And so coming out of school, my goal was to merge those things together. And so I started my career working at noodles and company, actually. So I was a regional marketing manager, oversaw the mid Atlantic, traveled like 75% of the time. So that was a really interesting time in my life from a lifestyle perspective. Which but I bet around- at like age like 23 was kind of fun, right? It was really fun, actually. And it's a really good way to, to save money when you're kind of like recovering right. from, you know, the, the college life. When everything's and- expensive. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, I mean, really, like I, I could not have picked a better first job, to be honest. It was just such a cool starting point for my career. But what was interesting is this is now like 2012, 2013. And food delivery was starting to happen. And so, you know, these food delivery companies were starting to try to sell into restaurants at any level that they could gain access. And the role that I was in as a regional marketing manager was actually an interesting entry point. And so I was starting to get sold by a couple of food delivery companies. And one of those companies was Order Up in Baltimore, which was part of my territory at Noodles and Company. And I just got really intrigued. Like I sat down and and heard them out on what they had to say. And I realized that this technology innovation that was happening with food delivery was going to completely change the industry that I had spent my entire career at that point. And so I decided to lean in. So I actually was one of the very, very early employees at Order Up. And I think that was the birth for me of loving that zero to one phase of a company when things are just getting started and also really embracing being a generalist. Because at that point, I I still worked on marketing a little bit, but I started to do much more than that. And I started to kind of throw out the idea that I was going to anchor my career only in marketing. And so Order Up's happy ending was an acquisition by Groupon. That's actually what brought me to Chicago because they're headquartered here. And I decided to stick around for a couple of years at Groupon because it was an interesting opportunity to see how a large public company functioned. Um, Of course, within that, though, I was working on go-to-market strategy for newer projects that they were launching. And so it was a little bit like working at a startup inside a big company, which was definitely an interesting dynamic. And then, like you said, most recently, I was craving something a little earlier stage than Groupon. And so I went back to like a series B stage company and that was Ritual. And so I stayed there for about two years working on enterprise partnerships mostly. And unfortunately, because their focus was very much on the way that people order food in an office setting, they were very impacted by COVID. And so my whole journey to entrepreneurship started with a layoff in April, as all great COVID entrepreneurship stories do. (laughs) Well, you end up then pivoting away from, you know, working for a company to starting your own company. And again, it wasn't something... Yeah, I feel like the natural will be like, oh, I'm going to start something in the restaurant industry or in, in food and beverage, but you start something in, in fitness and health and wellness. Um, how did you get the idea for IndieFit? And how were you like, you know what, it's time to start my own thing. Yeah. You know, I always say, I think 
the biggest enemy of entrepreneurship is comfort. And so had I just sort of continued on the path that I was on, I think it would have taken me a long time to really like upset the fruit basket and just choose to do this. But finding myself in a position where I was laid off did a lot of really interesting things to my psyche. It was this reset button that I didn't even know that I needed. And it created one of the first pauses in my career where I actually stepped back and I asked myself, you know, what are my goals? What do I really care about? Where am I going to find fulfillment? And I think some of those things were frankly just missing in, in former jobs. And so around the same time, studios and gyms were closing. And I was going through a tough time personally because of the loss of my job. And I've always loved fitness. Like I just label myself a group fitness enthusiast. I was the person who was class passing around Chicago like five days a week in a pre-pandemic world. And so I was forming new fitness habits around this time and my gym had closed and I was basically watching as suddenly all of my favorite instructors were taking matters into their own hands. And that largely looked like teaching classes independently on Zoom or even just popping up in a local park and teaching outdoors. And so I started to, you know, attend some of these classes and, and just have like dialogue and small talk with some of my friends who were in the industry. And I basically realized that for many of them, this had basically sped up their five-year plan to a five-month plan. Like there had always been this goal to go independent from a studio or gym, make more money, have more autonomy. And they were deciding to seize the moment because of COVID. And it was interesting because this led me to seize the moment, right? I was watching as so many of them were managing their business with Venmo. And I felt like, you know, there has to be a better tech stack designed just for this person, just for the fitness entrepreneur doing it on their own. And so I saw that opportunity and I realized that this was a very important, um, you know, there was a very important why now behind the business. There was a lot of immediacy. And so at that point, I just decided to commit and move super fast. And IndieFit was actually launched by mid-June after that. That's a crazy fast timeline, considering <laughs> I think your stint to ritual ended like March or April. Uh, so yeah, crazy fast uh, accelerated timeline to get this thing launched and online. I think that speaks to just the ability to be agile and craving newness, right? To the extent that you can get something new launched pretty quickly. Now let's dive into our primary topic of conversation today, which is identifying your highest value customers. Um, I think the best way for us to really understand that is to look through like, well, how do you get customers in the first place? So yeah, uh, what, you know, when you launched IndieFit in June of 2020, what was your initial customer acquisition method or methods? Yeah, you know, launching a company is interesting because you you usually do it with basically no money, right? And so in my case, I didn't anticipate starting IndieFit a year ahead of time. It was very sudden. I was unemployed when I did it. And so I really embraced the idea of scrappiness and really starting our customer acquisition strategy with things that probably wouldn't scale but would be really great ways to get started. And so a lot of what that looked like for us was direct sales. So we, I, I always laugh when I say this, but it was sliding into DMs. I mean, we truly were just approaching fitness instructors on Instagram, sending them a message with a little bit of information about what we were doing, inviting them to hop on a call and, and pitching them and walking them through this onboarding process. And will that strategy scale? Probably not, but we did it very intentionally at the beginning because it allowed us to really get to know our customers. And so my team and I were truly spending 
every single day, just talking to fitness instructor after fitness instructor. And I look back on that period of time and I think we learned so much. So while those were very, you know, scrappy strategies and free strategies to get started, I think it was the right way for us to gain a lot of market intelligence in a short period of time. Yeah, well, let's let's talk about that a little bit more because the sliding into the DM strategy, which I do think is a strategy, uh, as much as we want to like joke about the, the naming <laughs> convention of it, um, I think it's particularly it's particularly difficult on Instagram because if you're not already following that person, then like it goes into their like requested tab, which they may not even like see if they're not paying close attention, and then. I also think there's just so much crap that people get in their DMs. Usually it's someone being like, I can get you 5,000 followers. Right. Um, and so the, 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 the ability to tune out on the customer side is so high. So what was like your messaging strategy there? And, and what, like, what did a DM conversation look like? Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting because very commonly businesses get this label B2B or B2C, right? Are you targeting businesses or consumers? I am really trying to make a new term B2E a thing, which is business to entrepreneur. And these are people who function like businesses, but they're people. And so to your point, we were using channels that are usually reserved for consumer marketing. Like we're doing this over social media those DMs are very crowded. And a lot of cases, those are actually personal DMs. And so we, we wanted to acknowledge that and, and be respectful. You're saying what you're sending is personal or you're saying like it, like that, 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 like sacred space for them is, is that it's a personal inbox. Yeah. I mean, often both actually. And so some people have dedicated fitness accounts, others don't. And so in some cases it's like, we're, we're sliding into your personal DM inbox that you're reading right. while you're like trying to relax with a glass of wine on the couch on a weeknight. Right. And so we need to acknowledge like what that use case and what that experience actually is and fit into it in an authentic way versus being super salesy. And you actually gave us some great advice on this, which I really appreciate. Um, what was my know, advice? I, I don't even remember. <laughs> well, well, we, so we slid into your DMs, funny enough, before we had met in a different way. And um, I remember after we got introduced through 1871, you kind of like read back the message and gave us oh, some yeah. tips. <laughs> um, so it was, it was really awesome. Actually, I really appreciated that. But yeah. to answer your question, you know, I think, I think it's just being human. And, and so it might have taken us more time. We might not have been quite as efficient as we could have been if we had done copy paste, copy paste. But what we always did is we would always scroll through somebody's feed and try to learn something about them first and lead with that. And so if somebody has a really cute dog, talk about their dog, right? It has nothing to do with IndieFit, but human to human, you can acknowledge, you know, something personal about that, about them. Um, so that was kind of the way we approached it. And it definitely paid off. But as we start thinking about strategies that scale, you know, this is a bit of a challenge in terms of how we make that work for thousands of instructors rather than hundreds. Yeah, well, no, I, I like that approach a lot, especially because so many people do the mass blast approach which is so easily tuned out. Whereas someone will take interest and be at, at minimum, they will be like, thanks if you're like, oh, hey, love that photo of your dog or they'll like reply with the emoji or whatever. But then that you've created some like grounds for familiarity and then they're more receptive right. to the next message you might send. And, I, and there, there's a key like uh, kind of like growth lever here, which is, like that's different even than some people will generically say, oh, love your account 
It's like, uh, well, yeah. clearly, clearly you didn't actually look at the account if, if, if it's right. as generic as love your account. <laughs> and I think that same logic that you're applying can be applied to a lot of companies in their like more like, like traditional B2B settings where yeah. they look at like, you know, I, you know, I think what's popular in more B2B is like a LinkedIn uh, account, right? In a LinkedIn inbox. And you will see tons of math. Like I, I, every day I get a mass blast message in there. But the ones that stand out that I will send to people, the ones that I respond to that get sent to me and the ones that I you know, uh, train other teams on to get responses with are the ones where you can take some kind of interest in them, like, like hold off on the pitch for a second right. and lead with something about them before talking about yourself. So I think that's a really important um, thing you hit on there. And even as you scale, this is what I think is the challenge with, with every company as they scale is like, well, how do you do something at volume? And, and I always say like, well, have something recurring in the background that is a more like blanket approach. Cause you will just by sheer numbers, we'll get some people who are like, yeah, I can look past the fact that this is automated because it's interesting enough. Yeah. But then also maintain some semblance of the personalized. Um, Cause it'll continue to, you'll continue to get insights from it. And specifically when you look at like uh, the strategic partners, quote unquote, that's where it makes more sense, even more sense to do the personalized yeah. route. So I, I yeah. love that personalized approach, especially out of the gate, because you're also going to learn a lot more about who these people are. Um, Absolutely. So Instagram was the main method or the main channel. Did you also run like paid ads or use any other channel for acquisition? So we're actually starting our first paid ads this week. So we went a full seven months without spending money on marketing, believe it or not. So it was a lot of the direct sales. The other things we focused on were partnerships. And so one thing that we really recognize about fitness is it's very community-based. That's actually, and, and on all levels, right? Community-based, if you're the client taking a class, community-based in terms of instructors tend to know other instructors in their city. And so it was really a goal to tap into that. And so we focused a lot on, you know, referrals from instructor to instructor, and also working with really interesting partners who were already deeply entrenched in those local fitness communities. And so one actually great example is we're working with somebody named Christy Evanson in Chicago. She specializes in brand design just for fitness instructors. So nice. she's a perfect partner for us, right? Because she's really focused on brand identity and look and feel in their story. Whereas we're really focused on the, you know, technology mechanics of how they run their business. And so partnerships has definitely been another big one. But to that point of, you know, what is a great initial customer acquisition tactic and what is a scalable one? We've really just not worried about scalability this far in the journey. But as of 2021, we're starting to. So this strategy sure. is, is shifting a little bit. Yeah. And can you talk through whether it was the partners or the instructors themselves, once you get into that, you know, you get past like the initial personalization of like, Hey, I love your, you know, I love that class you taught or I love your dog, that kind of thing. Um, what was like your hook in the message? Like what's the value prop? And did that, did you, did that change at all as you started to send out more messages? Yeah, we experimented with a lot and it did change actually. So when we first launched IndieFit, we actually thought about ourselves as more of a marketplace. And what I mean by that is that we were actually going to try to market IndieFit as a consumer brand and drive discovery of independent fitness classes. And unfortunately, along the journey, we learned 
just how expensive and challenging that was going to be. And we stepped away from that part of the business a little bit, but we really started with this idea of we're going to help you grow your business, help you grow, help you grow, help you grow. And I've learned that that is a really easy thing to say. And I think a lot of people in this industry say it, and it's always a hook because everybody wants, you know, more business. That's usually the biggest self-identified pain point of any fitness instructor, but it's really hard to deliver on that. And so we got away from that a little bit. And now we're leading with other pain points, like we're going to help you reduce painful admin. We're going to help you eliminate back office work by giving you technology that automates the annoying things you have to do, like sending Zoom invites or repetitive messages, being your own customer service when somebody needs to reschedule. Counting if someone's paid on Venmo yet or not. Exactly. And so now we really lead with like, we give you simple but powerful tools to run your business that are actually designed for fitness, which is a big hole in the market because you can certainly go use Squarespace or Wix or some of these other one size fits all booking tools, but they're not super easy to set up and they lead to a lot of holes when it comes to things like a class roster, which is something really mm-hmm. unique to fitness. Yeah. Well, and, and, Again, I'll say uh, as a customer of the platform, um, I've used it for two classes now. And, you know, I, I found it to be really easy to use. Um, now, one thing that I think is interesting within that is, I mean, it even says on the site, like IndieFit beta is like next to the logo, right? It's like the beta version that out, it's out of the MVP, whatever you want to call it. And there are things within the beta version that I'm like, oh, this, this is a little bit annoying or like, oh, like it keeps logging me out. When I leave the browser, I got to log back in each time, right? Minor things that I'm willing to put up with. And, and my question, I'm getting to my question here. I'm willing to put up with, it doesn't bother me, but I wonder in my mind, I'm like, how much of that is because I know you and I know it's something that you're building. And so like, I want to support you. And I don't care to be the customer who's like, I don't know, this is a no, you know, like, and, I'll, and I, I've even sent you like a couple like product feedback emails in the right. interest of helping you, right? So how have you balanced, like, like take someone who's not me, right? Who doesn't, yeah. <laughs> who doesn't know you otherwise. Um, how do you balance having like a usable MVP or beta product against providing a good customer experience? Yeah, this is such a good question. And there's a really interesting quote that was shared with me actually that really shaped my viewpoint on this. So it's a Reed Hoffman quote. And he said, if you're not embarrassed by the first version of your product, you launched it too late. And we really subscribe to that kind of thinking. And so the goal was to go fast. And and that's evidenced by the fact that we basically went from idea to public launch product in about four weeks. But we had to think about that really carefully. And what we observed in the market is that a lot of fitness instructors were managing their business with nothing or Venmo or email. And so for a lot of instructors, the bar was really, really low. Of course, on the other end of the spectrum, you have instructors who have gorgeous websites with really robust booking tools, and they've been running very sophisticated independent businesses for several years. And so the way that we thought about, you know, how we could get into market quickly and start learning but do right by our partners. And and an interesting nuance in, in terms of what it means to do right by our partners is we're a B2B to C company, which means not only are instructors using our tech, they're using our tech to represent themselves to their clients. And so we definitely don't take that lightly. And so we thought about, you know, the, the basic features that were going to be really important, which was like seamless booking and payment, 
some light backend automation that made instructors' lives easier. So we committed to build just those things. And we initially just targeted the instructors where, like I mentioned, that bar was super low. Like we targeted the people using Venmo because we felt like we can definitely be better than Venmo. And then from that point on, it becomes this iterative cycle where you add, you add, you add. And as you improve your product and add more robust features, you can also kind of walk up this pyramid to targeting, you know, higher value instructors and and people who are running more sophisticated businesses. And so today we're actually getting close to a point where, you know, I, I do actually have conviction that this can be a better solution than Squarespace. Whereas six months ago when we launched the first version of our MVP, not the case, if I'm being right. honest. Right. Well, and I think what's important to highlight there is you said, as you looked at it, you said, we can definitely be better than Venmo. Um, not not the not Venmo is an all-encompassing like payments platform for anything, but in the context of a fitness instructor trying to collect payments for a class they're teaching, you can definitely be better than say, than that person having to say, here's my Venmo, Venmo me, and then that person having to keep track of all the people that have and have not Venmoed them yet. And that I think is really key as we think about like putting a product into market, which is like, can you be incrementally better than the thing they have been putting up with? Because if they've just been tolerating something because it exists, it's, it's a much easier switch to something that is still like mentally attainable for them. Cause it's not like, oh, we're going to hit you with this and this and this. It's just like, hey, we have a better way to collect payments that you know does kind of like that backend work for you. Now, as you gathered instructors on the platform, you get to, you know, you're at this point, you're near a hundred and growing. And actually, by the time that this episode is released, you'll be, you know, well beyond that. Um, how did you start to parse out? Hey, here's here's our high value customers, here's not. And, and at what point were you like, hey, we have enough data here to start really looking at where is our platform valuable and where is it not? Yeah, you know, this was a really interesting learning experience because I think when we first started thinking about the business, we thought fitness instructors, right? All of them. <laughs> Once we really got started, we started realizing just how much nuance existed in this industry. And so, you know, something like, what type of fitness an instructor teaches has a huge bearing on how their business functions. And so, for example, in yoga, you know, group classes are much more prevalent, whereas in more like high intensity formats, often instructors are a big mix of I teach group classes, but 50% or more of my business is like one-on-one -on -one coaching. And so it was a really interesting journey because we had to find, you know, where we should sit in terms of that landscape of type of fitness, we had to learn where in that landscape we should sit in terms of, you know, that instructor's reality. And so another way to parse instructors is, you know, like the side hustle type instructor who might have a full-time job and does this as a passion project on the side, the full-time instructor who is just getting started, the full-time instructor who has been independent for years. And so it was a lot to try to bite off and the variables are very like, intermingled and often difficult to separate. And so what we started to do was embrace this idea of like, rather than only trying to go out and acquire one type of fitness instructor, let's cast a really wide net. And then we can learn with actual usage of the product. 
And so once we had a bunch of instructors using it, we started to, you know, be able to make decisions about where we were headed and what the product should do with data. And the really interesting insight that stood out to me, which was kind of the, the genesis of us talking about this whole topic, was we looked at the data based on instructor. And we had this amazing epiphany that about 20% of our instructors made up 80% of bookings. And we needed a full day just to kind of like sit down and digest that. <laughs> it was actually scary in some ways, but the silver lining was, okay, this 20% is really, really important. And what are we going to do to be really intentional about learning from these people? And I think that is known as the Pareto principle, right? The 80, 20, uh, the 80, 20 yeah, rule, which applies exactly. in many other aspects. And you found that to be the case here. 20% makes up 80% of the revenue. Okay. So what kinds of like insights did you draw to that 20% regarding the, cause, cause I, I'm part of the other 80% like, in like the 80% who's only driving 20% of your revenue, not, not 20% who's driving 80% of your revenue, right? Like I'm, I'm the part-time instructor who is fine just teaching through like the studios that, you know, I'm employed with. And every now and then I have like a one-off need to, to do my own like special event class, which was the reasons I've used IndieFit. So like, you're not necessarily looking to me for like all the insights uh, on how to make this platform good for me, right? You're looking at how do you make it good for the other instructors I know who day in and like they're teaching like four or five classes a day. Um, yeah. So can you talk through like, the different uh, insights and lessons and sort of just like guidance that you've gathered from looking at your 20%? Yeah, it was a really big lesson in prioritization because I think before we uncovered this 80-20 phenomenon and we, we picked a very small number of our partners to obsess over, something that we really struggled with was feeling like we had all this feedback, right? And so we're looking at the feedback that we're receiving from everyone. And there wasn't a ton of commonality in that feedback. And so we were really struggling to know what to focus on because it mm. felt like, okay, we have this list of a hundred things that we can do. And there isn't like five, there aren't five obvious things that everyone's telling us we should do. So we don't know what to prioritize. And an interesting example of that is, you know, for instructors who teach one-on-one -on -one private training, us supporting that use case is like the single most important thing that they want from the platform. And we were very tempted to build that because we felt like, okay, if we build this, this opens up a whole new segment of instructors in the market that we can now go after. People are asking for it. And so we should probably build it. But when we looked at that 20%, we realized that not a single instructor in the 20% cared at all about one-on-one. -on -one. And the 20% was largely full of yoga instructors, actually, which I have some hypotheses on that. I think yoga is just a segment of fitness where there's a little bit more artistry and creativity. And so I think the idea of having an independent brand is, is more established than it and is. And it's generally speaking, like, generally speaking, like equipmentless, right? You just need a mat. Exactly. And if you don't have a block, exactly. you can use a water bottle. Exactly right. And so we started really realizing like this 20%, you know, they're, they're generally yoga instructors. 
they generally only teach group fitness. And so one-on-one doesn't matter to them at all. And we started to realize what did matter. What did matter to them was features that were going to help them retain their customers, features that were going to help them engage with their community. And so we really embraced this idea of rather than going wide, like rather than saying, okay, we're going to build a whole bunch of other features that allow us to go acquire more customers. We're actually going to spend some time building features that help us to you know, deepen our partnership with the partners we already have. And for the time being, just really focus on finding more people like that. Hmm. Okay. So that's, that's really interesting that you mentioned that. Um, and you wrote a really interesting blog post. I think it came out on new year's day where you were like reflecting on the past six, seven months, having launched IndieFit, and you called this like newfound focus on that 20%. Uh, like the term you used was like, like prioritizing, prioritizing loyalty. Um, Can you just speak through like, why do you, why do you, why do you choose that phrase above all else? And why, you know, you could have chosen a a bunch of other things, but why did prioritizing loyalty come to you? Yeah. So I think, I think the term prioritizing is in there by design because of exactly what we just talked about. I mean, I underestimated, you know, before being a founder to now having had this experience for the last seven months, I underestimated just how important prioritization is as a skill, right? I mean, there are no shortage of things to chase and fires to put out. And you really just have to develop such discipline in terms of identifying like, what are the most important metrics right now? And what are the most important things to do to influence that metric right now. And so, you know, this really became an exercise in prioritization across all things, across metrics in terms of really spending some time obsessing about making sure instructors stick with us and making sure the value of an instructor is increasing on the platform, because that means that we're not only bringing, you know, more and more and better instructors onto the platform, but it means that we're actually helping them grow their business. And so we want that dollar figure to be increasing month over month over month. And that age old saying that it's five times more expensive to acquire a customer than to keep one really rings true because we're realizing, you know, if we build features that help our existing partners grow their business, that actually has the same or better impact than just like throwing more and more and more instructors and being on this acquisition hamster wheel. So another interesting and and really cool thing that we've learned is there's this congruency that basically exists between our business and the businesses that our partners are running on the IndieFit platform. And what I mean by that is a lot of the business lessons that we learn are also very relevant to our partners. So this whole idea of prioritizing loyalty and really understanding who your most valuable customers are and optimizing for their needs actually completely applies in a fitness business as well. And so I I talk to instructors about this all the time, how they can feel like they are on the hamster wheel of constantly trying to find new clients. And one of the best solutions to that is, is retain the ones you already have. And so we've been really focused on sharing our learnings with them And then on top of that, you know, building technology enabled features that help them do this. So things that actually help them identify top customers and ways that they can, you know, use lifecycle triggers and marketing campaigns in our platform to create magical experiences for those people. That's really um, interesting because I'll tell you, most people in the fitness industry, just like they, they got into it because they liked, you know, teaching that type of class. 
but they don't have a very strong marketing or sales background. And in fact, most of them are just deadly afraid of touching the word sales. So the more you can teach them about, hey, especially when your incentives align, I think this applies to anyone where your customer incentives align to your own incentives. Uh, the more you can teach them about the things that you're doing that are working well, uh, that they can then leverage, uh, the more it makes the platform valuable beyond just like the transactional component of when money is made, right? Yeah, exactly right. You know, we, I think in 2020, we were just so busy getting, you know, basic features built for the platform and whatnot. One thing that I've said as something of a new year's resolution for IndieFit is to focus a lot more on content creation and being great content marketers. Because at the end of the day, you know, we can't solve these problems for our partners. I wish we could. I wish we could just be a magical source of, of client acquisition for them. But really, I think the way that we're going to think about helping with some of this and, you know, imparting knowledge, whether it be business fundamentals, marketing and sales excellence, et cetera, is, you know, creating the content and, and bringing in really interesting subject matter experts and speakers, cross-pollinating learnings across the community, and then, of course, sharing things that we are learning ourselves. So we're really excited this year to spend more time doing this because, this is our mission, right? At the end of the day, we want them to be successful no matter what that means. And, and we're right. eager to help in any way we can. Right. Now, I've got one more question before we begin our wrap up. Um, given what you've just said, and overall, I'd say the journey of IndieFit to this point, what do you feel all of this has taught you um, as it pertains to the pressure to acquire customers? which is, you know, especially as you go out and raise money, it's, it's one of the big levers that investors look at. So the pressure to acquire new customers versus the emphasis on retaining existing ones. It's taught me a lot. <laughs> it takes a certain amount of courage, to be totally honest with you, to say something as bold as we're going to temporarily take our foot off the gas as relates to customer acquisition. And at the end of the day, I think it comes back to that idea that we talked about at the very beginning of the show, which is the idea of like phases of a business. And for the last six months, we were really focused on finding product market fit. And I now wholeheartedly feel that in that phase of the business, the most important metrics are not, you know, the pretty up and to the right graph of look how many instructors are using our platform. You know, we could have hundreds of instructors trying our platform, but if none of them are sticking around, how meaningful is that really? And so we decided, you know, over the last couple of months to really focus a lot on some of those key metrics that relate to retention, value of an instructor. And I'm so glad that we have, and we're actually getting a surprisingly positive response when, when we present these things to current or prospect investors. So I've learned that some of that pressure to, to just demonstrate growth at all costs might even be artificial. That might've been pressure that I created for myself because retention and loyalty are really important. And I think largely people know that, um, but it's not always talked about <laughs> perhaps as much as it should be. Let's begin our wrap up now. Um, where can our listeners get in touch and learn more? Thanks for asking. So if you want to check out IndieFit, our URL is IndieFit.co, no M on the end. 
And one thing that I actually, this, this is more of a personal new year's resolution, but one thing that I just kicked off over the holiday break was actually standing up my own personal webpage and personal blog. I've really just learned a lot and had a lot of things to think about on this journey of building IndieFit. So I'm starting to spend more time writing about that there. So if anybody would like to check that out, that's Cheryl-Kemp.com. Who's one person you want to shout out, Cheryl? That could be a friend, a mentor, a colleague, a teammate, a customer, it could be anyone. Yeah, so I don't know if anybody's ever done this before, but I would actually like to shout you out, Raj. Oh, <laughs> I think Oh, wow. No, you're first on that one for sure. <laughs> I'm excited to be first. You know, when we first got connected, I remember you know, hearing about what you were doing through Startup Hype Man and, and heard that you were also a yoga instructor. And my head kind of exploded because I was like, wait, here's somebody who can help me with my company and help us tell our story, but could also potentially use our product, help me get in the heads of our target customers and give me feedback. And so you actually added an enormous amount of value for me in the last six months on all fronts. And so I wanted to just shout you out for being a great teacher, partner, and friend, and, and for having me here to talk about all this today. Well, it's my plan. I, I truly was not expecting that. So uh, I, I greatly appreciate that. And if I recall, I think one of the early points of feedback or direction I think I gave was like, because uh, it might have been the, the initial DM that I got from IndieFit was with an angle of like, how studios are like taking money out of your pocket. And I think I was like, hey, I, that works to an extent, but by and large, many of us like feel pretty connected to our studios and we want to see them succeed. So I think, you know, that might not be the right play. And, and I, I don't recall, but maybe you pivoted the messaging a little bit from there. Yeah, really important insight. And you are actually not the first to give us that feedback. This is why it's important to uh, talk right. to your customers, right? <laughs> right. So to wrap up uh, and, and finish out our wrap up, we'll each give our top one or two lessons or takeaways based on our discussion today. I'll go first, then I'll toss it to you. Our topic today was identifying your highest value customers. Um, to me, I think one of the things that really kind of popped out through this is knowing and emphasizing the retention side of it. Um, Growth is important, but growth really only matters when you know what you're trying to grow and who, you know, what customer base you want to grow. Who does that customer persona look like, sound like, et cetera. So really knowing when it's time to grow versus when it's time to go slower, quote unquote, and, and focus on who you already have and make a, a good experience for them. Cheryl, top one or two lessons or takeaways for the listeners. Yeah, yours was great. So I think mine are, first off, don't be afraid to do things that don't scale. I have no regrets whatsoever about the fact that we spent the last six months building our customer base with direct sales. It was cumbersome. It's going to be difficult to do at scale. We all know that. But I think it just taught us so much. I think we picked early acquisition channels that put us really close to our customers and gave us daily exposure to them, put us on the phone to get to know them and have real conversations, not just data points. So I would definitely say do things that don't scale. That's one big takeaway. And I think the second is just choose the metrics that you focus on in each phase of your business very carefully. And I think it's very likely that that first set of metrics, if you're a brand new company, is not growth, 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 acquisition like you think it might be. 
it might be those signals of product market fit. It might be like, how much is a customer using our products? How are we retaining these customers, et cetera, et cetera. So choose wisely would be my other takeaway. My final question, which is how we end every episode on this show, fill in the blank, Cheryl. Entrepreneurship is blank. Yeah, this was my this was my shower thought for a good like 10 minutes last night to figure out the best way to answer this question. So I came up with entrepreneurship is worth it. So I think it's just as hard as everybody says it is on your show. I would wholeheartedly agree, but so rewarding. Worth worth every crazy low, worth every day, sleepless night, worth the whole journey. <laughs> entrepreneurship is worth it. I love it. She is Cheryl Kemp. Cheryl, thank you so much for joining today on Startup Hype Man, the podcast, and closing out the season with us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And everybody listening, we'll be back in due time with a brand new season of Startup Hype Man. The podcast season 16 is just around the corner. In the meantime, you can dig through our nearly, I believe at this point, 200 episode archive of episodes uh, over about a five or six year stretch now. And we're really excited. We've already got our first few episodes lined up for the new season. And we're doing something new in season 16, where we're also, in addition to having our guest on the show, we're also featuring different elevator pitches um, from different um, companies that I've worked with uh, through Startup Hype Man to help promote them and feature them as well. So Startup Hype Man, the podcast season 16 is around the corner. In the meantime, we will see you next time. Hype Man out, word up, raise up. That wraps up today's conversation. Did you like what you heard? Startup Hype Man, the podcast is available on every major platform, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and more. So be sure to subscribe on your platform of choice and leave a rating and review. Do you want to be an upcoming guest on the show? Email media at startuphypeman.com with your idea and my team will review. Our theme song is Change the Game by Jay-Z, all rights owned by Rockefeller and Def Jam Records. And hey, if you want to work together on making your startup story the only one that matters, email me at rajiv at startuphypeman.com. That's R-A-J-I-V at startuphypeman.com. Well, that'll do it for today. Thank you for listening. Thank you to today's guest for joining. You have been checking out Startup Hype Man, the podcast. I'll catch you next week. But in the meantime, word up, raise up.